This podcast is proudly sponsored by Virtuous. Now, giving is a very deeply personal thing, and they believe that your fundraising should be too. This is actually something we talk about a lot on this very podcast in terms of how can we grow, improve, and optimize giving and generosity. So traditional impersonal fundraising tactics often alienate donors and create a distance between them and the impact that they want to have. Virtuous is the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships with all of their donors. And I have to say, I think it's a great product. I've referred multiple nonprofits and charities over there in the past and continue to do so in the future because I believe in the people and the product and I just think it's a really good modern piece of fundraising focused software. So I recommend you check it out. And if you are interested in finding out more, you can go to virtuous.org slash generosity. That is virtuous, V-I-R-T-U-O-U-S dot org slash generosity. Hey there, and welcome to the Generosity Freak Show. I am Riley Landenberger, and in today's episode, Brady chats with Sam Fankuchin, founder and CEO of Golden. This episode is super cool because we get to dive into a topic that we don't normally talk much about here at Next After. But it is extremely crucial to a lot of organizations, and perhaps yours. And that topic is volunteering. You'll get to hear all about Sam's journey to creating Golden and how the platform is digitizing volunteerism with the goal of creating totally frictionless and personalized volunteer processes. Sam also dives into a little bit about Golden's new global partnership with Charity Navigator and how exactly that came to be. So without further ado, I will hand it on over to Brady. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go I said welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go oh, Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Hi Sam, thanks for coming on the show Thank you for having me all right, so we're going to talk about golden uh, volunteerism overall and d- in and out of the pandemic. But I'd like to hear more about your own personal sh- story and just kind of how golden came to be. Yeah, totally. So for me, the story of what is now golden is also the story of my interests as a young adult and through to where I am today. It's been literally the sense of purpose I've had in my entire adult life, hmm. which started when I was in high school. I first was exposed to volunteering around them. And at first I wasn't so attracted to doing it because the people I knew who volunteered a lot usually were doing it because somebody else encouraged them to do it either because they got in trouble or they were trying to get into (laughs) a good college or they were part of a religious group. And it was just part of what they did together. And I never really encountered somebody who felt like they were so genuinely connected to the work they were doing. And for me, there were other things I cared about at that age that I thought I would enjoy more. And then the truth is that toward the age when I was getting ready to graduate from high school, I realized I really did want to volunteer because I'd be living on my own, not with my parents, and would have a lot more freedom to start spending time doing things I thought would be meaningful for me for the rest of my life. And I had a sense of what I enjoyed. I enjoyed the same kinds of things that most people do when they're 17. 
but I thought that I may outgrow some of those interests. And there was just enough out there in the world that I hadn't had exposure to that I wanted to know about to see if I would want to take my life in that direction. Hmm. And so at that point, I became totally deeply interested in figuring out how to volunteer and where to volunteer. And that was in 2004. So at that time, the resources that existed for me were my school and guidance counselors, friends who'd gone places, people I knew who were religious and had groups that did things, maybe a local volunteer center. Maybe I could Google around and find listings on, uh, you know, informational websites, listing services that posted general volunteer opportunities. But even then, I felt like none of those environments were all that navigable. I couldn't really tell how organizations were different from each other. Even if I could find out what they did, who knows what their programs for volunteers involved and mm. what would be required in terms of the work that you'd be doing or expectations around how long you'd have to do it for, commit to in mm. advance, and so much else. So I, I basically tried everything. And at, at the time I was 18 years old and I would reach out to every organization that looks somewhat appealing. And I would tell them everything I could think to share with them that might be relevant. And I would find that many of them at that time didn't even have email. Some wouldn't check their voicemail. It'd be weeks or months before I heard anything. They'd try and screen me out. They'd ask me all these things or try and make me feel like, at least from my perspective at that age, that the system was working against me. Right. That, you know, what felt like originated as a journey where I was just trying to be helpful and trying to spend weekends or evenings doing things to help other people felt like nobody wanted me there because I was young or didn't have professional mm. experience or I couldn't navigate the paperwork they wanted to give me or whatever the case was. Mm. And the whole experience to me just felt so misaligned from the intent yeah. versus the reality. Right. And I knew that if I was that motivated and that interested in actually volunteering and that I had to spend months trying to go through these processes to spend a weekend doing something only to find out that what it's all about may be better or worse than what I had in mind, but was probably different from what I expected yeah. it to be. And that... Mm -hmm especially in today's day and age in a world where everything is so personalized and on demand is totally misaligned from, uh, you know, the, the needs to be able to facilitate more engagement. And I just thought, well, I'm going to put every assumption aside and just start from the perspective of somebody with very little volunteer experience and say, how do I find the right volunteer opportunity and get involved with it? And I ended up going to college, I went to Stanford as an undergrad and I started as a public policy major. And while I was there, discovered the field of social entrepreneurship and realized that that was what I've always been interested in. I just didn't know there was a name for it. So I ended up being the first person to major in social entrepreneurship at Stanford, designed a whole program around it using classes from a variety of different schools, like the graduate school of business, school of education, school of engineering, et cetera. And in one of these classes, I pitched an idea for, this is 2006 now, a website that would personalize volunteer opportunities to anybody of any background so that they could mm -hmm. sign up for them. And I pitched the idea in a class. 36 hours later, we had term sheets for funding from two big Silicon Valley companies. <laughs> 
and I dropped out of college and started my first social venture, which was frankly just an earlier incarnation of what is now Golden. And in the experience of doing that, I started in San Francisco. I started working with hundreds, if not a thousand or so different organizers, just getting exposure to them, their programs, understanding what they're all about. And I started to realize how independently each of these organizations thought about what they existed to do Hmm. and how they treated their operations as a result of their intentions. Hmm. And in reality though, as you guys probably see in your firm, the processes for getting the work done, they're not all that variable. I mean, there's some differences in the way you deliver it, but you still have an intake funnel. You still have engagement lifecycle questions. You still have lifetime value retention issues. And I thought if the staff turnover in these organizations is every 12 to 18 months for anyone in any given position, and if everybody feels like their organization is so unique that there aren't best practices, that there aren't standards for getting programs done, how could it be, uh, how could that be the case if, if from the inside as an independent person looking at how they recruit people, how they screen them and engage them, the ways in which they engage them are all pretty similar. There should be standards and software to do this now, but there wasn't at, at that stage, right? 2008 or so. And I thought, well, we can't possibly improve the consumer experience of volunteering until we solve this intake and engagement process for the organizer. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up going back to school and enrolled in a spinoff of IDEO, the product design firm at Stanford called the D School or the Design School. And I studied user-centered design under the people who originated those theories and wrote my master's thesis on how to recruit, retain, and optimize, optimize the lifetime value of volunteers and donors. And the whole idea was, can we get the right resources to these organizers? Can we optimize the way that they're engaging and sustain them for a long amount of time across a variety of different ways of giving, volunteering, donating, advocacy, getting their networks activated. And can we do it in a way that makes everybody feel great about it and not like it's so transactional? Hmm. So after that, and I know you guys are interested in, in this podcast, a lot about innovation and stuff. So I finished my grad work in 2009, which was a terrible time to be raising money for a social <laughs> venture, especially as a first-time entrepreneur in the world. Around volunteering. <laughs> yeah, on volunteering, right? So here I am in Silicon Valley. There's great access to investors. But at that time, before Mark Zuckerberg had become the archetype of the college dropout entrepreneur that everyone wanted <laughs> to invest in, Investors were looking for seasoned CEOs later in their career that had two or three exits in the same space. They were not looking for, hmm. you know, 20-year-olds or 22-year-olds, whatever, who, who were trying things out from scratch. Hmm. So I thought rather than trying to go through that whole process in that moment in time, I would try and learn from what was happening with this economic recession. I'd try and do some meaningful work in a big business context. So I ended up working for a transportation holding company called Penske Corporation um, and helping them think about innovations in their business, what the future of their core businesses would look like and how they would get there. And a lot of those businesses involved technology platforms, marketplace business models, mobile first technologies, big data systems, themes that I knew would be very important for all kinds of transformation. So I left Penske and I went to a firm called Applico, which at the time was the biggest onshore developer of mobile apps. 
And we transformed that firm into doing corporate transformation consulting around mobile connected device technologies and platform and developer ecosystem-based business models for very large scale blue chip clients, as well as high growth startups. I did that for three years and then came back to Golden with a bunch of this expertise around how do you deliver best in class sustainable technologies that are interoperable, that are scalable, that are user friendly and intuitive. And the idea with Golden when we started it in 2015 was to do two things. One was to allow anybody of any background to live life in more of their golden moments, whatever those moments are. So for you as a Liverpool fan, maybe that's watching Liverpool games, but for somebody else, it could be reading, it could be bicycling, it could be anything. How do we help people understand that those moments that they enjoy, people they enjoy them with, could just as easily be done in a more beneficial context uh, where you're walking in somebody else's shoes that has some needs, you understand their perspective, you understand their way of life, you understand issues that compromise quality of life for a society more broadly. And you start to have some firsthand agency in addressing these needs. And so that was the idea. The consumer side of Golden was, how do we put anybody in these moments without any friction? How do we make volunteering totally frictionless and personalized? And not just once, but over the lifetime. The other side of what we were doing is helping organizers at every scale in the nonprofit sector, but also in all the other sectors that interoperate with the nonprofit sector. So that means government, corporations, foundations, K through 12 education, higher education, clinical healthcare environments, really a lot, of, a lot of different kinds of environments and just give everybody industry standard tools to automate their workflows so that sourcing people, screening them, matching them appropriately to activities, tracking them, reporting on that activity, analyzing that activity, all that could be delivered in a way where anyone who's capable of opening a web browser and going to Facebook or Dropbox or Spotify could figure out what's going on with their teams, what's going on with their programs and make them even better. Hmm. And so we, you know, we built free software for that. And then we built professional level software for that. And today, you know, a few years into the journey, and I know this has been a long-winded story, but here we are, this founder <laughs> no, story time, right? It's a podcast. <laughs> this is what people it's, tune in for, hopefully. That's um, right. You know, where we are now is the most popular app in the world for volunteering, top ranked on, on both iOS and Android. And then we have cross-platform web apps, many of which are, bl- are branded by, you know, enterprise-scale kind of brands that we work with. So could be a national nonprofit, a multinational NGO, a foundation, a company. Hmm. You may be interacting with Golden and not realizing it, but we power a lot of these other systems. And we are also the most award-winning software in the world for managing volunteer programs. And, Hmm. you know, I think it's quite easy to say, hey, you know, we're award-winning or we once got some nice press in a magazine that's an industry magazine or something, but the kinds of distinctions that we've been really lucky to earn are coming from leaders across different sectors. So for example, Facebook named us the global social good app of the year. Time named us the top way to serve your, or top way to simplify your life. Apple named us on top of their list of ways to serve your community. We've gotten Webby's. Um, We have these top ranked apps. We're the only private sector firm to testified for the National Commission on Military, National and Public Service about 
the tracking of civic engagement. Um, most recently, the Gates Foundation and IDEO named us winner of their global challenge to reimagine the future of giving. We've been named a world-changing idea by Fast Company twice, many others. And wow. these kinds of things are really uncommon to see in a social venture. They're also especially uncommon to see from a social venture that doesn't have any sales or marketing. So we have zero sales or marketing staff. We have zero marketing budget. Basically, anybody who's heard of us or worked with us has heard of us through people they know who use it. And today we're managing well over 8,000 different organizations all over the world's programs. Wow. There's a lot in there to unpack, but first it's just a, it's an amazing story and I appreciate you kind of sharing the whole thing. Cause it, I used to have a podcast called the good journey. And we, I would talk to a lot of founders and social entrepreneurs and it was just like, well, I don't even want to do an agenda. Let me just ask one question. Like, how did you, you know, where did this start? Because there's so, everyone thinks, oh, it's so linear and what it's just, it's not. And what's interesting is the, you know, the timing of things. And maybe if you would have been able to, to get funding and launch Golden when you did, maybe it would have sucked, maybe it would have failed. But, you know, to get that different experience and whether it's Penske and this and that, it's just always interesting to hear how these stories kind of uh, coalesce into like the right tool at the right moment and, you know. You don't get 8,000 users with no sales and marketing without doing something really, really, really right. So that's, that's really, really interesting. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, to be really clear, we would have failed. I don't think <laughs> the company would have been anywhere near where we wanted it to be, or I should say the social enterprise, if we had done this in 2006. And the reason for that, you know, is partially, obviously, lack of the right experience, but smart people, I think, can figure things out. The real challenge was in 2006 there was not the prevalence of mobile technology. Hmm. And mobile technology is what enables all of the personalization and the automation. So without yeah. mobile, if you're web only, then you're still relying on some level of data entry, which means the difference between using a website to do it or Excel to do it is not that much. You know, it's still, you fill in information about somebody and what they did and you send it into a system. Mm -hmm. And that delivers a limited amount of value. It delivers some credibility to people who are looking at that data. What it doesn't deliver is the totally frictionless process that we wanted, the ability to consider somebody's context and recommending things for them, the ability mm -hmm. to retain information and share it appropriately, the ability to notify people in the moment or to treat volunteering as an inherently mobile task, which it is, the ability mm -hmm. to support people in the field that have needs where having a desktop machine doesn't really make sense. Right. And to actually deliver the value that the ecosystem needed, we needed to be a mobile first technology company. So we started with mobile first, everything and every product we've ever built works on any mobile device anywhere in the world. Well, and even the, um, in addition to that too, there's the, just the volunteering or consumer you know, market too in 2006, while people maybe were looking to volunteer online like yourselves, there probably wasn't as many people on mass that not only were looking or expecting that type of experience. Whereas today, if you look, but you also expect a certain type of experience. I just tried volunteering at a local nonprofit, filled out a form, was broken, never heard from them. And I'm a, I'm a relatively skilled volunteer for them in that I exist in the fundraising world, right. you know, and I, I'm like a pretty good volunteer, I think, you know, new to the, the space. It's a, it's a foster care and adoption. I'm an adoptive father, like strong connection, all these different types of things and just broken form, nothing like randomly met the founder's um, husband and was like, oh, by the way, 
I tried to volunteer with like your wife's organization. And so that's the only way I'm ever able to volunteer with this organization was because of that. And even still multiple emails, I got to get a background check over here. And that's just one organization that I randomly found on GuideStar. So, and that's still today. And I'm a not, not technically savvy person who doesn't also not know the space. So I can only imagine the, the problems that you're actually solving for organizations and the timing being so perfect to, to have mobile first and on demand and around the world and all those types of things. It's just, it's a really cool story. It really is. Thanks. I mean, it's easy for us to think, and we would love to tell ourselves that, you know, we're so far down the road of fixing these issues for everybody. The reality is, you know, we're supporting a tiny, tiny fraction of the organizers mm. that are out there. Right. right. So for example, we support, I said, over 8,000 organizers, many, many more volunteers than that. But there are, depending on how you're counting, between a million and a half and two million nonprofits in the United States alone. That's not including all these other agencies that interoperate with them, like governments and CSR groups and whatnot. It's not including places around the world. And you know, while there are tens of millions, if not over 100 million volunteers in the United States every year, and many more elsewhere, none of this information is being quantified, organized, allocated optimally. There's so much work to do. And just hearing what you're saying about your volunteer experience, all of us can put ourselves in the shoes of a very highly functioning nonprofit that has a website that's an intuitive website that has a get involved tab. And on that get involved tab is a form. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter if that form came from your CRM or you built it from scratch or it came from Google Forms. You're still submitting information in a form that at best is just triggering a follow-up email or, or scheduling a phone call. Mm -hmm. That isn't digitizing your volunteer process. Mm -hmm. That is, that is right. convincing yourself and your board that you're digitizing <laughs> your process, but all you're doing is streamlining one step of it, which right. is general intake. Instead, right. you should be thinking, how do I address as many of the right stakeholders as possible? And how do I make sure that we convert as many of them as possible? Exactly mm -hmm. what you guys think about all the time. We don't want somebody who's totally qualified to not have a reasonable point of engagement with your organization. And one of the themes I know we'll talk about, you know, over the course of the podcast today is what is the relationship between somebody who may or may not be involved with your organization and whether they become a donor or they're just a volunteer or they're some kind of advocate. And the reality is the reason why volunteering is so important to all of us is because that's the front door to whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. That is the lowest barrier ask that you can have of somebody while still giving them firsthand exposure to what you're doing and enabling their talents to be allocated properly. So we care really deeply about digitizing the onboarding process for the volunteer. If you're an organizer, we want you to be able to just pop a widget on your website that automatically displays all your upcoming opportunities, automatically collects signups from the eligible volunteers for each of them, automatically checks them in, checks them out, tracks them, allows you to have field tools or you know, computer tools to supervise the way that the program's running and the data is being processed. We want it to live in a secure and reasonable environment for you to be able to manage. We want it to update all of your CRMs and your other tools in real time so that you're not reconciling records in one system versus another, so that you're not having to employ people as administrators of these systems that instead want to be spending more of their time building relationships, developing your programs, managing development activities. Those are the strategic uses of time. 
And you know, any, anybody who's spending time dealing with manual administration, coordinating stakeholder groups, whether it's directly people who are coming to you or indirectly when you're working with your corporate partners or education partners to run campaigns or days of service, those are all things that today can be automated. And most of the time they can be automated for free. The, the, when, the more you talk about the product, the more the, the, the word just time keeps coming up over and over because it's, it's time on the volunteer side of things, right? Of how do I use my time for something that I value? And what I don't want is to spend time and time, uh, phone calls and emails and drop things. I want to go help. <laughs> I want to use my time and skills to go help. And the flip side, the person behind the screen doing the intake, they have a lot of other stuff that they need to take care of as well. So how do you save you know, their time? Time is the most um, valuable commodity and it's the most wasted commodity in the entire nonprofit space. So it, it just makes so much sense. And when you really get into it, it's you know, online giving is really important, but it's also fairly simple, right? It's like kind of one intake and right. then that's it. And now there's a lot of other things downstream, upgrades, blah, blah, blah. But the, the process of signing up to volunteer, background checks and skill checks, like it's unbelievably complex. So part of me is just like processing things out loud because I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how broken the volunteer experience is. But now that I'm kind of in it, I'm like, holy smokes, that's a big thing. <laughs> so let's drill into that. Many organizers, especially the most professional ones, are hyper aware of the nuance in their onboarding or intake process. And usually they use that as a justification to either do things a very particular custom way or to request that custom software be developed for them at an enormous cost from a third-party contractor. And those, again, are not necessary anymore. So, for example, the kinds of things that we help our, our clients handle when you list an opportunity, we treat it as live inventory. We don't treat it as just a general listing of what you're doing. We need to have a structure and understanding of, of what's involved. And we need to know the parameters that would allow us to distribute it to the right audiences. And some of those parameters include things like, what is the capacity? Or when does this need to be done by? Or when is it happening? Is it online? Is it in person? Is it on your own time? Then we need to know things like, do you require a background check or not? And do you need parental consent or do you need waivers? Do you need other kinds of releases? Do you need, you know, the list goes on. These are all, these are all things that advanced organizers, like let's say we put ourselves in a super tricky situation, something like peer-to-peer -peer mentoring of youth cancer patients, right? Something where you're dealing with maybe HIPAA and you're dealing with COPA and you're dealing with one-on-one -on -one interactions. I mean, those kinds of environments, they require a lot of supervision. But again, these are things that technology can automate for you. So we do real-time background checks. We can give somebody a result within about 30 seconds, and you can use that background check wherever you want to go. That's the fastest in the industry. The reason we're so fast at doing that is because we, we integrate directly with government databases, which allows us to have reliable information. It also allows the user to own their own information and then give permission to access it to people who need to know it. But if you're an organizer, it means if you have that requirement, you just select that option and then Golden will process or whatever system you're using, if they have technologies comparable, they can process that and they can keep track of you know, who's doing what and make sure they're, they're qualified. You can also target specialized audiences, like people you know who have a CPR certification or mm. lawyers who are admitted to the bar in Mississippi or what, whatever it is you're doing. So just want to help people recognize that that's today's reality. And you also probably aren't going to be paying for it. 
Those kinds yeah. of tools that I'm describing are, are what we offer for free. When you start getting into paid tools, it's because you need branded properties, you have custom software that you need the data to integrate with, you're localizing in foreign countries that have special considerations. That's when you get into paid software. But just because you feel like you're hyper diligent about your program doesn't mean that you need to be on software like that. You can be on free software. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I was just, you could see me kind of like smiling, nodding because it's so funny. I literally had this conversation this week about background checks because we want to take our, our son into this area and we need a background check to take him into this area with other kids. I also need a background check for this other volunteer opportunity, two separate processes, two separate background checks, two different payments. And we we're just like, why is it, why isn't that just like one thing? And lo and behold, someone has actually solved the problem, which is, uh, which is just funny. So the, the question, I guess, and we're kind of jumping all over the place, but the, the question that, that I have then is like, why doesn't everyone use the software? Maybe that's partly what you're answering is people maybe get, do they, do they get too hung up on, well, I'm, I'm the unicorn, I'm unique, this doesn't you know, meet my needs? Is it like they just haven't heard about the product yet, which is why you come on podcasts like this, is to try to let people know, hey, there could be a better way. Or I'm always interested in why people do or do not do something, because this definitely solves a problem. So what is stopping people from using something like this? Well, you know, on some level, we could always do better as a team. Right. We could always be getting the word out there better, or, you know, we could always be communicating the value proposition in a way that the users were trying to understand, uh, to attract and understand. We could always be spending more money on it. We could always be using channels we haven't thought of. I mean, some of that is surely our responsibility, but we've also accomplished a lot. I mean, we do have pretty much network scale. We support a lot of the most demanding clients in the world. You know, we've supported city, state, and even federal level entities, often government entities. We support UNICEF at the global headquarters level. You know, we've supported disaster relief activities. We've supported, you know, publicly traded social media companies volunteering. We've, we've supported all kinds of different demanding use cases. The second biggest hospital group in the country's regulated volunteering. We've done peer-to-peer volunteering in the field. You know, the, the things that are like really hairy edge cases, we're able to cover them. And so we feel really great about that. But you may know this, on Monday, we announced a global partnership that's been two years in the making with Charity Navigator, where on the Charity Navigator portal now, if you're investigating organizations you want to support, you can find all kinds of ways to support them. It's not just donation, you can, but you can also get involved in all the activities that they have to offer. And scale with a lot of other providers. Uh, you know, we're really fortunate that we've got very difficult CRM integrations to get, that we're working with a lot of national scale partners on their programs across sector. We're really trying to develop infrastructure that anybody can use. And then we're trying to leverage networks that already exist. So mm-hmm. another partner we work with that may be familiar to, you know, listeners of this podcast, Hands-On Connect. They work with most of the big volunteer centers in this country. and you know, that system integrates with Golden. So if you've been using it in the past, you can distribute and track through Golden automatically and send that data in hands-on connect and many others. Um, you know, we're really proud of all that, but most of our growth now is coming through existing networks of folks, you know, who, who invite each other to the system and, and see value on their own without us having to communicate it directly. Right. Right. Well, and that, that's where I actually, that's why we're having this podcast was because of the Charity Navigator uh, announcement. 
And can you just maybe like take us behind the scenes and obviously don't disclose things that you can't, but like, how did that come to be? You said it was two years in the making. Was it kind of like, we want to intentionally pursue this type of avenue as a way to help more people volunteer and as a growth to acquire users and things like that. Did they kind of like approach you? Was it like, can you just, I'm always curious how these kind of deals and partnerships, you know, come to be. Uh, So how did this one come to be? Yeah. Uh, Thank you for asking. It's interesting. The way I would describe it may not be the way they describe it. So the way I would describe it is as somebody very interested in helping philanthropy be what it, what it can be at the philosophical level. I've always been attracted to the kinds of entities that have discipline around helping people make sensible decisions with their resources. Mm-hmm. And all of us listening to this podcast are probably familiar with Charity Navigator having a strong reputation for doing that. Mm-hmm. And so they've always been somebody we wanted to work with. And there are many other entities that we would love to work with too, who we've admired at a distance. I think one misconception is that because many associate us with being kind of a glossy tech firm of sorts, that we see ourselves as a disruptor. But I think that could be that. I mean, that's pretty far from the truth. We really see ourselves as building the technology that can connect this ecosystem in a way that nobody else had the resources to do. I mean, we spend millions of dollars on R&D. We recruit mm-hmm. really top talent. We comply with all of these major regulations around the world, like CCPA, GDPR, COPA, HIPAA, you know, et cetera. All the, all the fun ones. All the fun ones, the things that are really hairy. And we have to go through all these security reviews and make sure the governments trust us. And, but we do it because we know that the organizers who are doing the work on the ground don't have the capacity to do it. Mm-hmm. And so we just, we just want to be able to be additive and, and drive growth. And so when we, when we connected with Charity Navigator, I, I, you know, I remember who connected us. It was a lucky interaction I had with somebody who believed in what we were doing and, and had a relationship with them. But I think you know, what interested them in working with us, I would assume, or at least just listening to what you know, I've heard Kevin and Michael and Stacy and, and all the people on that team mention is, that that we're a little different than everybody else and what we've been able to accomplish, that we really are prioritizing the technology and we've been independently recognized for the quality of that technology. And I think ultimately there are plenty of people that want to do partnerships, but if you're going to spend two years of time aligning your board and your partners and adjusting your brand to be able to accommodate a partnership, you really have to believe in the partner's ability to execute and that's something that I think our team is just so proud that we've been able to establish ourselves as being. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm sure there'll, there'll be more partnerships in the future. And it, it does make sense. You know, people rely on Charity Navigator to find organizations, find ones that they believe in, find that ones that they can trust. And so to have, you know, volunteer opportunities right there just is a natural. Like when I saw the announcement, I was like, yeah, that's brilliant. Makes tons of sense, you know. But what you don't know is the years of, you know, work behind the scenes actually. Uh, make that happen. So that's really cool. This podcast and episode are proudly sponsored by Virtuous. Now, Virtuous believes that giving to a cause is deeply personal and your fundraising should be too. This is something we often talk about on this very podcast. Unfortunately, today's nonprofits are handcuffed to outdated fundraising models that reserve personal connections for a select few major donors. Instead of creating connection, traditional impersonal tactics alienate your donors and create distance between the donor and their impact. 
Virtuous is the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships at scale. Responsive fundraising with Virtuous combines modern technology, data intelligence, and donor-centric giving experiences to foster personalized conversations with every donor. Virtuous is more than just a CRM. They unify fundraising, marketing, and donor development activities, ridding teams of redundant back office tasks and reviewing the insights needed to deliver dynamic campaigns all in one place. You can turn data into deeper donor relationships and grow your fundraising with Virtuous. And if you want to learn more about responsive fundraising with Virtuous, you can visit them at virtuous.org slash generosity. That's V-I-R-T-U-O-U-S dot org slash generosity. One, one thing that I wanted to talk about, and we don't need to go all the way into like all volunteerism and, you know, things like that. but. I think anyone listening or one of the first questions I had was what the heck did volunteering look like in 2020, right? So many volunteer opportunities are virtual, but there are many that are not. So what does a global pandemic do to volunteering? Excellent question. And I think this year has been such an interesting year, not just to look at case studies of how things have evolved, but also to look at what it did for this whole sector from an operational standpoint. Mm. But I think before answering that question, it would be helpful to define what we mean by volunteering and the formats of volunteering. So a common conception, and I would argue, you know, potential misconception is that volunteering is episodic local opportunities where you're doing repetitive tasks like working in a, you know, food bank, food pantry, food recovery center, or doing a beach cleanup. And there certainly is a lot of that. Pretty much every community has needs like that. And so there are organizers who are taking those needs and executing on that. But it's also virtual things, you know, doing webinars, doing remote projects, sometimes on your own time. It could be board service. It could be advocacy. It could be skills-based volunteering. It could be a lot of different things. And so it's really important to give credit where it's due across the sector to organizers you know, who maybe haven't vocalized that, that they've had the practices of having diversified forms of content, of, of programming, but it's really essential. And so the obvious trend that I think most people pointed out is, well, during shelter in place, during the COVID-19 pandemic, how do you get people together to go do volunteering in the traditional sense? Right. And that certainly became more difficult because it's not safe or practical to have people get together in warehouses the way they used to. And as a result of that, not just for that kind of activity, but a lot of activities, anything that could be digitized or made virtual was made virtual. And, you know, trainings are done through Zoom or whatever the case may be. But to me, there are so many more interesting layers to this than just that. Mm -hmm. So the first is, you know, do you have diversified ways for people to get in touch with you? Like, can they do these virtual things? Can they come by in a safe one-on-one -on -one way? You know, can can their projects be provisioned in a way that they can take ownership of them and do them? That's one layer. Another layer is, well, when else has there been so much vulnerability in the world that we've known during our lifetimes as 2020, you know, in, in you know, for regular people living regular lives, not, not during a war or whatever. I mean, this was a year where everybody's life changed. 
anyone who had any kind of condition that had already made their life a little bit difficult suddenly made it incredibly difficult. And meanwhile, we're also going through a period of time where it's becoming more evident to people that, you know, race and your background and other things can account for very different ways of life in certain situations. And all these things, I think, made everybody hypersensitive. But the beauty of this technology for facilitating engagement is that it's allowed us to rise to the occasion in all of these settings. And that means things like recognizing vulnerable populations and making sure that they're educated and made available to the kinds of technologies that can help them with basic needs. It means creating technology that establishes enough trust for one user and another user that they can rationally and safely agree to do peer-to-peer interactions to help each other out. That could be your neighbor in a city where it could be really rural communities without infrastructure that need to account for each other. And, and don't have the level of aid that you might have if you're in a more developed area. Hmm. And I think it's also been transformational for the space because while every organizer that had mission critical activities that they had to figure out how to deliver under the circumstances, and they had to take responsibility for meeting increased needs of their populations, they also started to clean house and make a lot of other decisions about how their programs were being run because they had the liberty to do it. When people are working from home or they're more distributed or they're already reevaluating certain workflows that they have, it's a very good time to hmm. examine how you do business and make sure that you are being the best version of your enterprise for your stakeholders. And I'm just so proud to be in a sector that very often gets written off for being lethargic or the exception to the rule for what are norms in other sectors suddenly say, well, you know, what happened in your sector this year? It probably slowed down. Our sector, you know, in many cases, engagement on our platform increased. Mm -hmm. So I can say that that means by association that the folks we were working with, their needs increased, their business may have increased. Mm -hmm. And they've also taken in stride the ability to collaborate outside the walls of their institution, the ability to modernize certain traditional programs that they've had. And the technology is an enabler of that kind of change management. I think that's a, a really great point because there's a lot of things, especially when we talk about technology and software, where perhaps, you know, we give nonprofits a bad name. Maybe not you. I give nonprofits a bad name for maybe how they view technology, use technology and things like that. But fundamentally, our space and our cumulative product is unbelievable. You know, giving went up last year. Online giving was up 30% on our benchmark, 21% by Blackwell's benchmark. Like it's unbelievably resilient and it's core to so many different walks of life. You know, if you said as a, as a business person or a case studies, like here's something that almost every single person in the United States can participate in and does participate in one way or another. And it actually goes up when the economy's worse <laughs> and stays strong when the economy's good. You know, it's rel- it's super resilient. It has positive benefits around like blood pressure and how, like it's an unbelievable product that we have in terms of giving and volunteering. And that's why I think sometimes I get frustrated because it's like we have the best product on earth and we still are struggling to like really find ways to, to make the most of it, you know, and generate donor retention and lifetime value and things like this. And people are still buying crappy products instead of giving to causes or those types of things. But it's a really, really good reminder that what we have on offer, you're right, is so amazing. And our space is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And 2020 was a great you know, reminder of that. So thank you for that reminder. <laughs> no problem. It's pretty cool. I mean, 
as, as somebody that has a lot of different stakeholders, we've got employees that are, you know, concerned that they're doing the right thing for their family all the time. We have clients who trust us for their core needs. We have markets that we're trying to help explore and expand that question our ability to be effective. We have financial supporters who've made our work possible that are curious, you know, how are these trends going to affect our ability to execute? And it's, there's nothing but gratitude for the people who we work with to be able to show the evidence that this is a time to excel and be innovative and allow people to be more generous. This is a time where all of us are vulnerable. All of us are in a position to help each other in ways that the big institutions that we've come to trust may or may not be totally adept and, and capable of delivering. You know, one of the other interesting trends this year is mutual aid. You know, mutual aid's been around for hundreds of years. It's the idea that you're in a, a community and people in the community offer things to each other in an exchange basis. And mutual aid is incredibly effective in certain communities for addressing basic needs because those who have needs can sort of announce what their needs are and those in a position to fulfill those needs can understand where their energy and resources are best spent. Sometimes those are local communities like a few blocks in Brooklyn. Sometimes it's a university where the way of life totally changed this last year, what was happening on campuses and what life was like for people on campuses. And it can also be online groups just looking to help identify the last mile of needs that exist and closing them. And historically, mutual aid groups had operated as community organizers. You know, meaning they'd go like knock on a bunch of doors, they'd have somebody staffing a phone, maybe on WhatsApp, and they'd be, you know, making one-on-one connections. We, you know, this is going to sound a little self-promotional, but we recognized the need of peer-to-peer interactions really early on and developed technology to support those peer-to-peer interactions in a very trustworthy way. And, you know, specifically, we developed that with hospitals that were caring for discharged patients and discharged patients had some basic needs. They were using pools of volunteers to go and do these very specialized tasks, but they needed a trustworthy way to coordinate the person with the task and keep track of its fulfillment. Not only that, you know, you have to consider dynamics of is our mutual aid community going to be something open that anybody can join and see what needs exist, or is it going to be something that's very personal and and monitored? So when we work with religious groups, very often the leader of that religious group will understand their congregation and who needs what and who's in a position maybe to help, and they're brokering these interactions quietly. Technology can still preserve anonymity or protection of your personal information in a way that facilitates these interactions. And because the technology has now matured and become available to facilitate it. It's also enabled the folks who you thought would never be supporting these local community groups to do so, Mm -hmm. which often can include governments, can include corporations. And that's also just such a highly innovative case study to look at. I mean, how, how proud can we be of a sector that's managed to bridge those, those gaps in communities Mm -hmm. between people taking care of each other and feeling like the world's working against them. And those with enormous resources who want to put them to work, but are worried about liability or, you know, legality of what they're doing. And these things aren't issues anymore. You know, thanks to, thanks to 
individuals having control over their permissions, making rational choices about what they want to do, doing so safely. And, you know, no matter how good product we make or anybody else makes is, we can never control dynamics like that. And that's what's so exciting about working cross-sector like this. Well, and that's what's interesting, too, about when you kind of um, identify key problems or potential future problems or problems that will get bigger into the future and can can have those in place before something like the pandemic hits or before those things are, you know, at critical need. I think that's really interesting. I was uh, emailing with a a friend who uh, works in like the donor advice fund space. And they were saying too, of just like, it was their biggest year of disbursements and donor advice funds. A lot of people kind of love to dump on because, you know, they think that money just like stockpiles and doesn't go out. But there's a lot of research that says in actual downtimes, donor advice funds are actually one of the most critical sources to keep funding flowing into the sector because it's already been giving. So people who give from assets have already made the donation. There's nothing stopping them from pushing money into the markets when we need it. And so to see kind of that infrastructure, especially donor advised funds on the digital side, already in place, already established with billions of dollars being held, actually helps us as a space and a sector now. So you can kind of give them a bad name when we don't need the money, when it's like, oh, they're just hoarding assets. And then something like a pandemic comes and the economy turns and we're like, please give us, you know, the donor advised fund money. So not that that's a direct parallel, but I just think it's interesting how some of these infrastructural things going on in our space we're lucky that someone like you or someone else has built and invested in these things before we truly, desperately, absolutely needed them because then it's too late. Totally. And, you know, we couldn't be more inspired by, you know, the, the ability for gas to deliver value to people. And, um, it, you know, this is probably a really good time to talk about some themes about the, the different forms of giving and their relation to each other. Mm-hmm. We believe very strongly in giving in addition to volunteering. The reason why we began by addressing volunteering is because that's the top of the funnel. That's the first interaction somebody has with your organization. And from there, when they have firsthand experience, when they have context for the work that's being done, when they understand how much work there is to be done and where they fit in in getting that work done, everybody is so much more motivated to give to their potential through their experience. And there's a lot of academic research around this. You know, Fidelity Charitable a few years ago did a study, I believe with Deloitte, uh, where they found that people who volunteer donate 10 times more than people who don't volunteer. The reason for that is they understand the issues. They feel like they're personally attached to them. They know exactly what needs to be done in order to advance things. And they know what they can do toward it. And the difference between that and the more transactional approach to development where you're segmenting audiences based on your perceived capacity for them to give or their giving patterns of the past or what channel you found them through, and you're putting them on campaigns that you think statistically are likely to convert them to do something. In the ideal scenario there, you're targeting somebody who has a little bit of context for what you're doing or at least recognizes your name in a moment where you feel it may be appropriate for them to make a decision, either because it's that time of year when they do giving or because there was a moment that may have affected them where they felt a connection to the work and they wanted to further the work. But that's what you're hoping for. And the difference between that kind of transactional fundraising and developing a pipeline of supporters who will go to the end of the earth for you because they see you as a part of their everyday life 
is totally different. One of the ways it's different is if I'm the sort of volunteer, you know, who appreciates the work an organization's doing, and, and I'm motivated to give a little bit more, give closer to what I could give. The minute that I make that gift, I'm feeling like I'm fulfilling my ability to be helpful a little bit more, more so than by comparison, you know, all right, I'll respond to your request, you know, which may, I, I may miss the money that I donate in a situation like that. In a situation where I'm psyching myself up to make a gift, I'm probably going to feel great about it. I'm probably going to feel like I had no better use for that money. That's where it's got to go. Mm. And if I feel that way, I'm probably also talking about it. I'm probably also providing social proof about why I made certain decisions to people whose values are aligned with mine, who might make similar decisions. And this is the transformation that we need to make as people who are trying to drive dollars to the right places. We can't be chasing lists that somebody, you know, that we paid for or that we've been storing in our CRM or, you know, whatever, and hoping that we're going to see increased giving year over year. That's not the way it works. Those kinds of donors churn out. And the traditional donors who are doing endowments or major gifts when they had an exit or a liquidity event of some kind, that is a very greatest generation, very boomer mindset of I'm going to make a fortune and give the fortune away. There will probably always be people who think that way and want to make sure that they leave this world in a better place than they found it by making major gifts. But the way that Gen X, millennials, Gen Z think about philanthropy is by saying, well, you know, I live in a world that has some conflict in it, that has some unresolved issues. And I have very sincere, genuine values about the world I want to live in. But I'm not just going to be writing checks and expecting them to, you know, go someplace good. I want to understand what's happening. I want to experience it. I want to be a part of the solution. And then I'm really going to give. And so if you want to stay ahead of the generational shift from that traditional form of giving to the more modern form of giving, you need to start with volunteers because they're the ones you haven't asked anything of other than like, here's what we're doing. Do you want to be a part of it? Is there something here that's attractive to you? And do you want to understand more about what we're doing? And you're building a relationship that's going to be so much more lasting. Part of the advantage of DAFs is you can put in money when it's advantageous for you to put in money. And that money is going to be well invested in a place where it's going to accrue interest or, you know, give you access to be able to distribute it later. And you can set goals for yourself. You can also be planned about your portfolio acquisition or allocation. You can also, you know, there's, there's a lot of other advantages. I mean, I could probably wax poetic about DAFs for an hour. <laughs> and, the, you know, they were largely misunderstood. I think now they're becoming better understood, you know, misunderstood in the sense that a lot of folks were aware that there were billions of dollars sitting there and not being deployed. but it makes every it makes sense in every way to have money there and then begin to deploy it and have more kind of cash flow through them than it would to just have a slower process of distributing funds one off and uh, you know we're excited about that because we can start to build commitment early in a donor by getting them maybe in the beginning to put money into a DAF when they start their journey or maybe set goals for themselves and do it or remind them at opportune times to do it and then stay on top of their distributions as well because in a perfect world, even though foundations may have to distribute, let's say 
of their AUM every year in the form of grants. You know, if they're earning much more than that, and if they're contributing to it over time, you know, why, why shouldn't the standard be a little bit more than that? Why shouldn't we have people be a little bit more fluid in their transactions? And a DAF makes it so much easier to do that than, than one-off, you know, checks. So we're thrilled. You know, we work with a variety of DAF providers. We have underlying DAF technology that we're developing and releasing in conjunction with some support from the Gates Foundation and IDEO. Our idea is, and, and this is a future-looking statement, but, you know, we've had this technology you know, under the covers for a while, and now we're starting to iterate on the user experience around it more. But we want everyone of every background on every kind of journey that they're going through in philanthropy to be able to reach its potential. And so we use declared behavioral and predictive inputs from a user to be able to give them contextual ways to give that they're gonna feel great about and wanna continue giving toward their full potential. And we do that using DAFs. So you know, I'm a big fan. I think probably every technocrat would tell you they're a big fan. Of course, obviously, there's some trade-offs here and there. But I think at the systems level, giving more optionality to potential donors to help them feel empowered is a very good thing. Yeah. And I mean, there's <laughs> we could be talking for hours and hours on on all this stuff, because even within... Within that, I mean, the, the, the point you made on the DAFs, I think also does apply on the other side to transactional fundraising, where uh, people maybe mislabel DAFs in terms of how they were used or how they're perceived, even though some of that's true, but not all of it. I, I would say the same thing around transactional fundraising, where a lot of it absolutely is bad and those donors do churn. But it's not like list rentals don't work or can't work if you do understand the motivators behind why people actually give as a source of incoming. What often doesn't happen, though, is that is people just go like, oh, great, we'll rent this list, we'll blast some people, we'll get some donors, and then we're like, we'll do it all over again. And as long as we can do it enough, we'll keep. And that's not sustainable. That's why giving hasn't grown in the United States in 40 years. So it's not like DAFs are bad. Transactional fundraising is bad. None of these things are inherently necessarily bad of themselves. We talk about this in email, like, oh, I get too many emails. You get too many crappy emails. You probably don't get enough great emails. So how it's executed is a big part of it as well. If one DAF actually is motivated by finances and assets under management, as opposed to how do we actually help the sector, and I've been around those financial companies, I used to work for an online DAF company, they do exist, where they aren't motivated by helping nonprofits, but they use a DAF model to help their folk. But that's not everyone. There's tons of people that use a DAF model like you do, or like our company did, or other people's do, because it's an unbelievable product to help uh, generosity at scale. So I just think it's tough when we get in these conversations like transactional fundraising or DAFs or things like that, because it's how those things are applied, which is often more important than, you know, the strategy or the tool or even the, you know, software or product itself. Right. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to criticize transactional fundraising. I think you can, that's fine. <laughs> no, I think um, it's misused a lot. You know, same way DAFs may be misused a lot, Yeah, and that, right? was, that was my point, is yeah. that these things often get misused. There's nothing inherently wrong with a DAF necessarily. It's the implications and who's behind it and the motivations and those types of things. Same with fundraising. Like, you can right. absolutely abuse fundraising but and transactional in nature, but it's not inherent in it. Look, right? I mean, if you're not doing transactional fundraising, you're leaving money on the table, you know, just right. in terms of an absolute dollars taken in standpoint. So it's the, the two disciplines are additive. But you can inform your transactional fundraising if you're building profiles on who your users are in a more sensible way, which is why it makes sense to broaden your points of engagement with them besides just your typical giving campaigns. 
Yeah, and where we failed a lot with like predictive models is they're they're based off past giving behavior and financial amounts and wealth screening and all those types of things. But the more and more and more we actually know more about donors, the number one thing that predicts whether someone will give to your cause or not is how engaged and connected they are to your cause. It doesn't matter how much money they have. If they don't care about you, they could be a millionaire. It doesn't matter. So back to your point around volunteering, like this is a critical part and why we see these stats. If you volunteer, you get to know an organization, you get to know the cause and their mission way better than a thousand perfect emails ever could. You know, one hour of volunteering does what hours and hours and hours and thousands of dollars in marketing can. So again, these things are very, very much complementary. And all that you're trying to uh, allow people to see is how they can actually, um, you know, make a difference in the world, whether it's through time or talent or those types of things. And I, I think you're right. You know, when we look at retention and churn and future giving and all those things, we have been too transactional and not focused enough on engagement and experience. And I do think that the trend that you're seeing is a similar one that we see in fundraising where, you know, engagement is a leading indicator and volunteering in different ways, not just the, you know, I'm scooping mashed potatoes on a Wednesday night, which is fine, but we have to kind of continue to evolve that and organizations are evolving, which is, which is awesome. Uh, this is great. This is such an interesting, uh, you know, conversation. I've got a lot of time to think about the volunteering world inside of things. So I appreciate you sharing more of your time and expertise. This is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no greater pleasure. Like I said, this is personally my life's purpose. This is what I've dedicated my entire adult life to. This is the thing that everybody on our team, you know, has said that I'm working on this to make it my life's work. And you know, we just do what we can to be enablers of excellent work other people are doing. I mean, there's nothing in our ecosystem that has any value if, if it doesn't begin with and end with, right. um, you know, real transactions, real interactions. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we may need to have you come back on and we can, we can talk about DAFs and some other things, but I want to be sensitive uh, about your time and moving to the, the final section here before we kind of close with some last thoughts and where people can find out more about you. But I want to do the rapid fire because I'm really interested in, in kind of how you would answer some of these questions. Go so uh, what's one of your favorite podcasts, books, or websites right now? Let's see. I would say I've been paying a lot more attention to Clubhouse lately. Hmm. I'm going to opt out and say that that's kind of a version of a podcast because I think that's the direction <laughs> Clubhouse is going. Yeah. But I think that's very interesting to sort of see what the latest and greatest trends are of social interactions. And there's some interesting organic conversations happening over there if you haven't checked out that app. Yeah, I just uh, I just got my invite the other day and joined because there's a nonprofit group kind of spinning up. And I was like, oh, curious to see what that looks like. So I think everyone's kind of uh, observing from a distance to see what that looks like. Um, what's an organization uh, that you love, admire and or support? I want to throw a huge shout out to FarmLink, which FarmLink, FarmLink, F-A-R-M-L-I-N-K, which was a bunch of students from different schools during the pandemic that decided that they saw some real gaps in food distribution, food recovery networks, and they spun up some very lightweight infrastructure for making sure that food was recovered and distributed appropriately to people who needed it during COVID. And within eight weeks, they started processing over a million pounds a week of food. And I think mm -hmm. the next most similar organization, one that also is a partner of theirs, I think in their eight-year history had recovered something like 12 million pounds of food. So to give you a sense of how extraordinary that is, it's just absolutely unbelievable. And I think wow. this week, maybe even yesterday or the day before, they won a 
uh, I'm going to mess up this. Somebody can fact check me. They won like a presidential medal of honor for their no work, way. <laughs> you know, within a couple months of starting. Wow. You can imagine that. And wow. uh, we're fortunate to have them as, uh, you know, a member of our community, but I couldn't be more inspired by, by those guys. It's awesome. All right. Changing gears a little bit. You get to choose one musician or band to listen to for the rest of your life, but you can only listen to them for the rest of your life. That's it. I'm going to go with Luis Miguel because that's my wife's favorite. Oh, getting the bonus points there for the, yeah. the wife answer. That's good. I want her to be happy. I see myself with her for the rest <laughs> of my life. So what a, what a good husband. Uh, and then for you, what, what's one of the best volunteer experiences you've ever had? This is kind of a, I'll give you a couple different ones. Um, kind of a fun one is when I was in school, I volunteered for the Pebble Beach Concord Elegance, which is kind of the best be all and end all car show in the world. It's like mm. all these $10 million cars or whatever. <laughs> and I didn't realize that that's the kind of thing you could volunteer for. I didn't realize <laughs> that I could be thrust into the center of the universe for something that I was really interested in just by raising my hand, you know, and then on the other side, it's, it's about, you know, <laughs> just just doing what you can to be most helpful. And some of the most rewarding volunteer experiences I've had in the last year especially have been peer-to-peer -peer interactions where I'm helping neighbors out with stuff and seeing the validation of improving somebody's way of life in, in a firsthand kind of way. Hmm. But I really am the sort of volunteer who enjoys experiencing everything trying every different format and set of responsibilities out to really understand and learn from the experience of volunteering. So I think of it more in terms of life exposure to different organizers doing different things than I do about, you know, that one time that I had that totally changed my life. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and I actually want to ask one more rapid fire that wasn't what wasn't planned, but just uh, what, what's a tip for someone who's, who's maybe interested in, in volunteering? that maybe you've learned around what makes a great volunteer or how to find a good opportunity or just anything related to, to volunteering for someone listening. What's a, a piece of advice to be yourself. Hmm. You know, Simple. I think every organizer would tell you like, you know, if they had their way, this is my list of criteria. And I hope that you satisfy these criteria, which is something hmm. obviously we help them do. But you will be the best human being and the best volunteer when you can apply yourself to your full potential. Hmm. And you're gonna learn a lot about yourself by stepping outside the role you normally perform, the things you usually do in your life when somebody else's priorities come first. You're just gonna see the same things in a very different way. Hmm. And when you do, you will be so much more enabled to fulfill your potential. And I think the best volunteers and the society all of us wanna live in is one where you know, people are empowered to help. Like if they, if they see a need that it's just part of their day to go out there and fulfill it. And that's only going to happen when these interactions are genuine. There mm. shouldn't be any bait and switch. There shouldn't be mm. sort of like manipulating who you are to be what somebody else expects of you. Instead, think about how volunteering is going to help you live the life you want. How is it going to help you be more relevant to the world around you? And, um, you know, you should never compromise on that. Life is all about... Yeah about living it the way you want to live it and helping other people live it the way they want to live it. Great. I think that's a great uh, ending point as well. 
Where, where can people find out more about you and your work? You can find out more about Golden by going to goldenvolunteer.com. You can download our app in either app store if you're trying to volunteer. You can also volunteer on the web. If you're an organizer, you can go to dashboard2, the number two, dot goldenvolunteer.com, and you can sign up for a free account of any kind. If you would like professional help, you have specific needs in mind, you can email us at support at goldenvolunteer.com. We've got 24-7 onshore support, no cost. And if you'd like to say hello, feel free to get at us on Instagram. We're at golden app. We're also on other social media platforms too, but usually we spend most time on Instagram. Great. And we'll be sure to link those up in the show notes as well. Well, Sam, thank you so much for, for taking the time and walking through your journey and some of the stuff that you've been learning and some of the amazing work that you do and are up to. Uh, long may it continue. Keep it up. Thank you so much. I think this is a very special angle to be taking on thought leadership and podcasting addressing. And there's a lot of responsibility that comes hand in hand with thinking at the abstract level about thought leadership and operational excellence. It's the kind of work that nobody directly gets credit for. You just look back a year later and hopefully the work has improved. <laughs> but, you know, these are the kind of big picture thinkers, you know, who are going to be responsible for closing the needs gaps that exist. And it's so cool that you've been able to convene an audience that values that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to the Generosity Freak Show brought to you by our friends at Virtuous, the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships with all of their donors. Be sure to subscribe to all future episodes at generosityfreakshow.com or search the Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, other platforms that start with S or wherever you get your pods. Now, the Generosity Freak Show is a production of Next After, where we combine the perpetual learning of a fundraising research lab, the practical application of a digital-first agency, and the rigorous instruction of a training institute to decode what works in fundraising and make it accessible to as many organizations as possible. You can learn more about the work that we do and get free evidence-based fundraising resources at nextafter.com. Now, this show would not be possible without a few folks, including our mixologist, Jacob Hill, producers Riley Landenberger and Nathan Hill, and the chief visionary behind it all, Tim Kuchuriak. So thank you so much again for listening. And no matter where you are or what you're doing right now, I hope you're having a great day. <laughs>